Welcome back to the 109th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including two about the debt ceiling. One is about the Hail Mary pass the Democrats are trying to pull in order to get around what the Republicans proposed. And the second one is asking, is there a deeper reason that this is happening? And then there's a final article talking about China's newest weapon in their war against us and if we should really be afraid of it. And of course, we'll end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump into our daily debate. So as we can see, really spelled out very obviously by this debt ceiling debate, it's always the party that is out of power, that doesn't have the strings of you know, the House, the Senate, the presidency to manipulate in order to get their way. They're always the one trying to portray themselves as the responsible ones. And I want to know your opinions as to why this is the case. Is it because they don't have any other political plays or they don't want to say that they're directly against some of the policies so they have to say, oh, we have to be responsible? Or maybe they genuinely believe that when you are not in power, you have to be the one pulling the other side back and being responsible and keeping things in a moderate direction. You know, there are lots of different theories out there. So throw yours down in the comment section. Love to hear it. Love to see what you guys have to say. So our first article comes from Common Dreams. House Dems unveil Hail Mary plan to defuse GOP's debt ceiling ticking time bomb. So, of course, if you watch or listen to the last week's version of the podcast, then you know that the Dems have basically said, no, okay, we're not going to work with the Republicans here. And I don't necessarily think it's out of malice. It's that they may deeply, deeply believe in their hearts that the Republicans are trying to slash vital programs and that it is hypocrisy for the Republicans to pass a clean debt limit when Trump is in office, but then when Biden is in office, they will not do the same thing. Now, of course, there are people on the right that say, well, hey, you know, it's their job as the party that's not in power in order to hold back the other party from really expanding the budget and putting into place a lot of their policy positions. And then other people will come back and say, well, the Democrats, they supported a clean debt ceiling most of the time when Donald Trump was in office. So once again, it seems like hypocrisy. So they're trying to get around it. They're saying, okay, we're not going to negotiate. We're going to get our own kind of bill on the table. And there's this clever little workaround that they are going to try to use. But let's give a little bit of background before we get directly into that boring, oh, this is an old Congress policy that we can talk about and get into. Some people don't care about that. So let's fill in with the setup, you know, try to lure you guys in a little bit with the details, and then we can move on to the more boring stuff. Quote, House Democrats on Tuesday unveiled their closely held plan to force a vote on the debt ceiling hike without extreme conditions. A remote bid to prevent the chamber's GOP majority from unleashing an unprecedented and severely damaging U.S. default. Less than 24 hours after Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warned that the federal government may not be able to meet its financial obligations beyond June 1st unless Congress raises or suspends the nation's arbitrary borrowing limit before then. House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries announced a so-called discharge petition effort to avert 
the Republican-manufactured default crisis, end quote. So let's break it down. Manufactured crisis. Is it a manufactured crisis? And honestly, your opinion on this is going to vary on where you are politically. If you are a Democrat, you're looking at the Republicans saying, why can't you just give us a clean debt limit? You know at the end of the day that we need to pay our debtors. We need to have money available so that if someone like China comes calling for some of the debt that they have bought, then or at least asking us to pay it back, then we need to have the ability to do so. And then if you're a Republican, you're saying, well, hey, we need to be able to pay off our debts, but also if we don't want more debts in the future, then maybe we should cut some spending. So at the end of the day, where you come from is really going to determine how you view this. And when they say manufactured default crisis, I guess to some degree they have a, a point, which is the Republicans are asking for something. They are asking for the Democrats to give up a little bit of spending somewhere else in order to pass a new budget. And in that case, it is manufactured because, yes, they could just pass the limit cleanly. But then once the Republicans have done their job and they've put up this bill and the Democrats come and say, no, no, we're not even going to negotiate. It's not even like we just solely disagree with what you're saying and we're going to say that adamantly and we're going to propose a counter. It's no, we will not even negotiate. And then so then you could say that is manufacturing a crisis because they are quite literally holding the American economy over the fire and telling the Republicans, you going to do anything about it? You going to do anything about it? Or are you just going to give up at the last second? So both of them are actually manufacturing the crisis, in my opinion. Both of them could actually do something different. But the other side isn't willing to acknowledge that there is an alternative. They're saying, no, no, we're going to stick to our guns. And that is a major issue if neither side is willing to bend by, as Yellen puts it, June 1st. So as we get closer, we'll see how more heated this battle gets. The fact that the Republicans put this on the books in early May, this new, I believe it's called the Limit, Save, Grow Act, the fact that they put this on the table in early May is better than trying to get something through at the last second. It gives the Democrats and Republicans time to sit down and really talk about it. But maybe this should have been ironed out a little bit earlier. Maybe it is a little too close to the end. And that is also causing a little bit of uh, strife or a little bit of hesitation because the Democrats are probably like, oh, they put it off until the last month. They knew that they could hold us uh, our feet over the coals of the fire. So we'll see how it plays out. But let's go to what the Democrats are trying to do right this second. So we're going to talk about how this discharge petition works. Quote, the discharge petition, an obscure mechanism empowering 218 lawmakers to pass bills the speaker refuses to consider. It's almost never successful because it requires members of the ruling party to defy their own leadership. Democrats with 213 members would need to find five Republicans willing to sign on, and some Republicans are already warning that it will never happen, especially after GOP leaders last week were successful in passing a debt ceiling package through the lower chamber, end quote. Now, 
you know, there is a little bit of pushback back and forth. And when you first read this, you're saying, oh, the peel off five Republicans is probably not going to happen. Well, remember, the Limit Save Grow Act actually had four Republicans who peeled off on its initial vote. And, you know, one of them was Matt Gates, and I don't remember the other three, unfortunately. But they peeled off and said, no, no, we're not voting for your bill, McCarthy. Now, do is that because it didn't go far enough to cut certain programs, or maybe it was because they just want a clean limit? I don't know. I haven't heard any of those three, or sorry, four, speak on it. But it does speak to the fact that the Republican Party is not fully united on this. And I think even though the chance of this actually working are small, there is the possibility of peeling people off, especially as we get closer to that date. When people are starting to get pressure from their constituents, as you get closer and closer to that date, you may see a lot more Republicans willing to fold on this issue. And I wouldn't be surprised if we're looking around May 25th and some Republicans are going to McCarthy and saying, hey, man, you know, these workers, they keep calling my office. I don't want to let my people down. I don't want to risk my political career either. And I need to make sure that everybody who has Social Security in my district is going to get their payments and we can't have a default. So as time goes on, then the pressure will build. And that's what Democrats are probably looking for. They're probably not trying to concede too early with any type of deal. They're not trying to come to the negotiating table too early because they want to see if any Republicans will fold underneath the pressure. And, you know, Democrats may feel the exact same way. They may feel like they have to fold underneath the pressure as time goes on. So that's why you probably see McCarthy, who's just going out and saying, hey, Democrats, please do something. But he's not lambasting them too much yet. He's kind of giving it an easy, like, they need to do something, but, you know, we'll, we'll give a little bit of time because he also wants to see once the pressure starts really getting up there. Like, they're in a pressure cooker. Right now they're at probably about 75 and then they're probably going to get to 80% here in a week. And then when you come to May 25th, it's going to be at 95 97%. And then we'll see who cracks. And I think that's their position as well. It always is. It's always the last minute. Hey, oh, well, this is a national crisis. This is a national crisis. We need to get our stuff together as a nation. And we have one day to pass something, two days to pass something. And then we see this crisis talk, this very, very provocative language come out from different senators and congressmen and we start to see who peels off because they're too afraid to hurt their constituents or they're too afraid to hurt their constituents which will then cause them to lose their next election i'm not trying to say that every person that is in government there who is an elected official only cares about the next election there are good people who do genuinely care about the citizens that they represent but a lot of them just want to keep their job so We'll see. Like I said, the pressure is going to get cooking here soon. So let's ask, what are the Democrats fighting against? And I'll make this a really quick read from the quote because I do want to move on to a more cynical view of what's going on with the debt ceiling battle. But this is kind of a view of how Democrats understand what's going on and what the Republicans are trying to do. Quote, they're not going to get any Republicans, Rep. Scott Prairie, head of the far-right Freedom Caucus, told the outlet. We've already passed our bill. This so-called Limit Save Grow Act passed last week by House Republicans would raise the debt ceiling, but only in conjunction with measures to slash the nation's already tattering social safety net. 
weaken efforts to crack down on wealthy tax cheats, and repeal clean energy investment and more. Senator Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has said that the bill is dead on arrival in the upper chamber. President Joe Biden, has, who was vice president in 2011, said GOP lawmakers weaponized the debt ceiling to impose austerity and hurt the nation's credit score in the process. He has also refused to entertain Republicans' plot to treat the global economy as a bargaining chip to advance attacks on programs and benefit work programs that help the working class households, end quote. End quote. So, as you can see here, the lines are most definitely drawn. They're looking at what the Republicans are proposing, and they're saying, yeah, you, you want to be responsible. You want to cut some of the budget deficits, but you're doing it in the wrong places. That's what it seems like the argument is. I would say if you're a little bit more cynical, you would probably say, well, no, the Democrats just don't want to cut spending whatsoever because they barely ever do. And the same thing goes for when Republicans are in full power either. They're totally more than willing to funnel a whole bunch of money to programs, new bills, agencies that they want in power. And it's just this constant, oh, well, no, no, we're the government. We can just keep spending. It's no big deal. But then when, like I said, when they're out of power, that's when the other party becomes semi-responsible. And the Democrats, maybe not so much, but it still does get brought up that, hey, these certain programs that you guys are proposing that don't actually help working class people, maybe we should take a little bit of funding from those. Those have those sort of things have been brought up during the Clinton and Obama administration before, which we'll talk about in this next article. So there is a, a little bit of play there. But for the most part, it's the party out of power saying we need to be responsible. We need to cut the deficit. We need to be able to pay back our debtors. If anything, in the ideal world, which I don't see happening within my lifetime, we should get most of the debt off the books. We should not be a debtor nation. We should be a creditor nation like we used to be. Now, that's a long way away. It's going to take huge, huge reform in order to get there. And it may even take a huge default in the economy and coming to terms with the new global reality as it emerges. But we'll see. We'll see how that goes going into the future. Let's jump to our second article that comes from The Intercept. What the debt limit fight is actually about. And here you go. This is where we get we get cynical. We get very, very cynical. The Intercept is a very left-wing, well, not always, but a lot of their writers are very left-wing, and you have a very cynical take on what the Republicans are trying to do here, and not necessarily just in this specific instance, but what they've been trying to do for nearly 25 years. So let's start with a nice little quote. It's really about the possibility of the failure and this author's opinion about it. You already know what might happen, but now we're going to get their perspective. Quote, it's hard to believe that I'm typing these words, but there's a genuine chance Congress may fail to pass an increase in the debt limit. That would mean the U.S. might then, in turn, default on its debt sometime in June. No one knows what might happen at that point because it's completely unprecedented. But it almost certainly would deeply be deeply unpleasant with huge job losses, unprecedented bits of economic imploding, and knock-on effects in other countries that will make them both fear and hate us for decades. It would be the kind of massive self-inflicted wound that could be pulled off only by an empire in their dotage. Congress has veered close to disaster in the past, 
but I've always believed that it would be impossible for it to actually happen, end quote. So let's start with the outrageous or bold, it might actually happen. Everybody says it might actually happen this time, and it never, never does. Now, the author will go on to explain why they believe that it could happen this time. I think it's a little bit of fear-mongering, if I'm being honest, but we need to at least hear the author out because there's an underlying tone here that they're getting at, which is more than the fear-monger, more than the, oh, it may actually happen, but it's highlighting the distrust that people have with the U.S. government, but also the people that are of an opposite political persuasion than them, especially the elites, elites, the political elites that have power in Washington. Just like you see a lot of Republicans look at Democrats, and I'm saying Republican voters look at Democrat political elites, and they say, oh, they have deep evil plans that they're trying to fulfill. They are back there, you know, smoking their cigars, twirling their mustaches, drinking their wine, talking about how we're going to bring down the end of the working class, we're going to export all the jobs, whatever it is. There's this idea that the opposite political party has malice or they are actively doing things in order to hurt certain parts of the population or they're malicious in their intent. Whereas I would argue that Maybe they're just not the smartest fellows because to ascribe the fact that they somehow are better and they're able to plan out this evil, malicious, long-term plan that will take down America or change society is to ascribe a lot of knowledge to them. And I don't think they deserve that unless they actually prove that they are that intellectual and malevolent. I would say that for the most part, a lot of senators and congressmen are pretty average people. They are average everyday Joes that wanted to serve their nation. They got in and then they got a little bit of that taste for money and they got some good connections with the lobbyists and they went from there. I'm not saying they're malicious. I think that sometimes they're just a little bit stupid, just like anybody else can be, just like I can be on a regular basis. Trust me, ask some of my friends, ask my girlfriend. I can be extremely stupid sometimes. And, you know, everybody can. So it's interesting that this author is very, very passionate about the fact that this is a, I don't want to say a cabal, but it's most definitely a well-thought-out plan that is being put in place. So let's go to the Republican view that she really, or he, sorry, I don't actually know the gender, um, that they outline so obviously here, quote, and this brain-damaged community has a coherent worldview that for the survival of America, by the way, she's referencing Republicans here, they must destroy the administrative state, a.k.a. the New Deal, a.k.a. everything people like about the federal government, such as Social Security or regulations that stop chemical companies from dumping poison into your water. Meanwhile, the normal Americans have no idea the right has this planned. There you go. You see that word planned here. And even what it does, what the words mean. And any hard right reading of history suggests that the Green New Deal and the basic infrastructure of U.S. politics it created 
was a compromise that allowed human beings to live with capitalism. The alternative in the 1930s were, on the right, some form of fascism that would keep capitalism but eliminate democracy, or on the left, dismantling capitalism and trying something wholly different. The U.S. right has now come to the conclusion that this compromise was a disastrous mistake. So let's pause there. And you see what she's she's playing at here. She's trying to set it up as, okay, there's this debate, there's this back and forth, there's this compromise between fascism and the end of democracy on one side and the end of capitalism on another. And first off, it is not that plain because the amount of American fascists, one, was not solely on the left or the right. Look at, I don't want to say that Woodrow Wilson himself is a fascist, but he had a lot of tendencies that were authoritarian, trying to concentrate a lot of power in the executive. So this push to have a really strong leader who couples industry with government is not necessarily found on one side or the other. And socialism, while it is tended to be found on one side of the political spectrum, there is, of course, arguments from people that, well, we can have democracy, but then have a socialistic economy, which is really developed after the fact of the 1930s. But the way she's trying to frame it is that there were these two choices, and then there was a compromise made in the middle, and this is a, a, a middle ground solution. First off, it's not a middle ground solution. And second off, when she jumps to the fact that now Republicans think that this compromise was a mistake, it really heavily implies that they think that, oh, we should have stuck with fascism or we should have gone to the right. Now, I'm not saying that she's direct, he or she is not directly saying that, but when you frame it that way, saying the right was headed towards fascism, the left was headed towards capitalism, and then you say the right nowadays didn't agree with the compromise that was made, it seems to imply that they are headed towards fascism again. And that is a very tricky rhetorical mechanism that she's using here to make you believe that the right is heading towards fascism. I do not believe that the right is heading towards fascism. I do not believe outright that the left is headed for a perfect socialist utopia. I think there are actors on all sides that have certain tendencies, but I do not think that is the overall position of either party. So you can see that there's this this battle going on between the author trying to justify some of the grandesses that the government has put in place, some of the welfare programs, the administrative state that they talk about, and then also trying to criticize a certain portion of the government. And I'm not trying to say that they can, they're having their cake and eating it too. I just think that maybe they should take the approach that government kind of sucks overall. It's not just one faction. It's not just the Republicans. It's not just the Democrats. Government itself sucks. It serves a abundance of purposes. Otherwise, and if I didn't think it was important, otherwise I would not be hosting this podcast right now. But overall, government sucks. It does things really badly. It does things very slowly. It is full of bureaucrats. And at the end of the day, it's a place for compromise. And if you want your outright political opinion to win, then create a totalitarian or authoritarian state and then implement it. 
don't try to come in and say one side is practically morally justified and the other one is not. I'm not saying that they're outright making these claims, but it most definitely feels like there's an undertone, a battle going on, trying to justify her side and demonize the other. When we should acknowledge not everything in politics is justified, not everything is demonic in nature. Government is just sucky. Not, we just have to accept that as citizens. We deal with the system that we have. We create change. We try to make it better. But at the end of the day, it is the government that impedes upon our natural rights. We have natural rights as a human. And then we give up some of those natural rights in order to participate in a society, a system that is run by a government. If you're a person who doesn't want to give up those liberties, you may love safety, but you may not also not want to give up the liberties because you don't see the safety that that government provides as valuable enough to give up those liberties, then you're going to say that government sucks. If you're a person that is predisposed to safety, risk aversion, then yeah, you, you may have a more favorable view of government. But then could we acknowledge that maybe they could make things safer and they're not the best at doing what they should be doing? So what I'm saying here is government's not the best tool to do it at the end of the day. And I think that this author is playing with those undertones and isn't necessarily getting to the point is trying to have a really cynical view of Republicans trying to destroy the current way that government is done. And I don't necessarily think there's this, like I said, I don't think they're sitting in the background twirling the mustaches trying to destroy it. They just have a belief system, a value system that says we need things to be more efficient and faster and administrative states and bureaucracies at these different regulatory agencies and regulations in general, all of these are impediments to people, and they want to limit the impediments to the lives of their citizens. Now, maybe that's being really generous on my point, and of course there are different social issues where they do want to jump in and use the hammer of government to say, oh no, this is not okay, we will directly impede in your life, you can't do A, B, or C. So obviously... There are different sides to the Republican Party, but I feel like when it comes to regulation and administrative state for, let's say, businesses specifically, they are very, hey, take your hands off of it. And then on social issues, they seem to be very, hey, put your hands in the middle and try to make it how we want. And we'll use the club of government in order to enforce our value system. So at the end of the day, what can you take away from this? A really long rant that basically got nowhere. Uh, Government sucks, and we have to be active participants and try to always make it better. We can never be negligent. We can never stop paying attention. We call them out when they do something wrong. We praise them when we do, they do something we like. All right, let's jump to our last article. It'll be a very, very quick one. This comes from The Daily Wire. Pete Ricketts warns of new weapon communist China is using against the U.S. So... I'll pull out two quotes very quickly. One explains the problem, and then one highlights how we dealt with it in the past or something similar in the past, and if it's going to be that huge of a deal. So, quote, Senator Pete Ricketts warned during a foreign relations subcommittee hearing this week that the Chinese Communist Party is using state-of-the-art AI to create deepfakes to destabilize the U.S., Deepfakes are photos and videos that have been digitally manipulated to alter voices or images or other aspects of the content to appear authentic in an effort to deceive whoever is viewing the material. 
quote, the threat of disinformation and weaponizing information against the U.S. Is, and our allies to divide us, divide our citizens, is on the rise, said Ricketts, end quote. And, you know, this is, of course, true. We've seen a lot of videos, and especially photos. Videos haven't been fully refined yet. You can still see a few of them where it's, it's pretty obvious. They're, of course, the really convincing ones. But photos have really come a long way, a long, long way in the last few months. And it is scary to think about that when you go on Twitter, TikTok, they could show you something. They could make claims about it. And you could look up whether the claims are true or not. But you may go and do your research and be like, oh, well, some of those claims aren't, aren't true. But, you know, this other one is. And then you find out later that the photo itself is completely fake. And people just latched onto the claims rather than the photo. Because they were like, oh, well, no, we need to test these claims. I'm just going to take the fact that this photo looks real to be, oh, it is real. This is extremely scary stuff, especially with how often people just go through social media and look at things very quickly and don't do a deep dive. I, I do this myself. I won't lie. In my Flipboard articles that I go through, I, every single one that I read, I try to read the entire thing. I don't skim. I don't try to just read the headline. And I throw it and save it. But very seldom do I go and do the extra layers of research. If it's a topic that I'm really passionate about, I will. And if there are really, really bold claims that I want to disprove, I'll go and do a little bit of extra research or I'll dive into some of the links. Or if there's positions that I don't agree with but I'm curious about, I'll do that. But very often it's a very superficial, okay, we get the information here, we understand what they're saying, we understand their point of view. I'm just going to assume that they are ethical in the way that they're doing something. And if the Chinese Communist Party is trying to destroy America and our allies, they're not going to be ethical. They're not going to be like, oh, yes, we have to have integrity when we're trying to trick the Americans. No, they're not going to have that. So it is, it is kind of concerning that this is the new age that we are living in. But, you know, we have dealt with propaganda in the past. Quote, but the idea that our adversaries would try to use disinformation to deceive us is not new, Ricketts mentioned. The Soviet Union during the Cold War spent billions on disinformation campaigns as part of their statecraft to destabilize the U.S. and U.S. allies at the time. And, quote, I believe that in 1980, for example, there was a conservative estimate the Soviet Union spent $3 billion on different disinformation campaigns as part of their overall strategy, he said, noting that the Soviet Union outspent the U.S. 10 to 1 in disinformation campaigns at the time. So we have dealt with this before. We've had disinformation, and I say disinformation, I don't like that term. We have had false information piped into the United States or propaganda piped into the United States before. Now it's just a lot easier to get to practically everybody because everybody has a cell phone versus then where it was piped in through newspapers or different articles or maybe a TV commercial or a underground radio station somewhere in the U.S. But now it can go basically directly to every single person on their phone. And even if it doesn't go to the, directly to them on their phone, it could go to these websites where we share content, where we go out and try to be social and also sometimes gain information about the world. So just keep it in mind. Whenever we're going through, whenever you're going through social media, just keep it in mind. Do your due diligence. And if you don't care, if you don't put enough weight into it, like, oh, you read something on social media, it's like, oh, 
Yeah, that, that may be true. Probably not. If you just have that approach the entire time, it's not a problem for you. But not everybody does. And it's hard to do that sometimes because you read something and it's shocking. And sometimes you want to believe it and sometimes you don't want to believe it. But sometimes it really sinks in. But that's enough of the sad stuff. Let's jump to our daily delight. And this one comes from the animal rescue site. Mama cat hugs and kisses comfortable kitten. Viral video melts hearts online. And, you know, from the title alone, you can tell what's going on here. Sometimes you just need a hug from a parent. From a significant other is great. From your friends is great. But sometimes you just need a mama hug, especially when you're a little little one. Quote, the video was shared on twi- by the Twitter handle Amazing Nature with the caption, Mama Cat Hugs Baby Kitten During a Nightmare, end quote. And this, honestly, this poor little guy, you know, I know some dreams can be very scary, but at least he had someone around and he wasn't truly alone. Quote, in the video, one can see this tiny kitten who is visibly disturbed laying besides its mama. As the video progresses, Mama Cat quickly wraps her paws around the kitten and showers it with kisses to calm the little one down. End quote. And if you don't think that's cute, and if that's not going to brighten up your day, I'm sorry, but I, I think that one is adorable. And if you want to see any of the photos or videos of these two little ones, or you want to read any of today's articles, there will be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button where you can find all of them. Also down there, you can find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast, Podvine, as well as the Twitter handle at your daily flip, where I post a link to the video every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so you can come directly to YouTube. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.